a 20th century author, A.W. Tozer, wrote these words. He says, next to holy scriptures, the greatest aid to the life of faith may be Christian biographies. Now, since 2004, I've been going through one saint per year um, to encourage us in the faith. There's a number of reasons um, that I've been doing this. Of course, I think it's scriptural in Romans 15, 4. Uh, Paul speaks about the lives lived before are for our instruction, that we can gain, that we can profit from how God uses and moves through the lives of others. But secondly, I think it's important for us to see how God moves through imperfect people. You know, we are very quick to assess ourselves as broken and unable, and yet he uses unable in people with little ability oftentimes to do great things for his name. And then thirdly, I, I share these stories because I think it helps you to see the marvelous grace of God through the ages. And it reminds us of his faithfulness leading us to worship. Richard Baxter, a 16th century Puritan, said these words. He says, the writing of church history is the duty for all ages because God's works are to be known. So that's what I want to do today. Now, the books I used, um, and, and if you're interested in these, you can email the office and we'll order them for you. Uh, one is by uh, David Danielle, William Tyndale, a biography. This was a bit thick. Um, it took a little bit to get through, but it was very well written, and it's, it really has a lot going. I wouldn't start there. I would, um, I would probably start with this one, a little thinner. <laughs> got neat pictures in the middle. Um, it doesn't actually, but it's the dying, Daring Mission of William Tyndale by Steve Larson. He's a preacher, I think in Alabama, but it's a good overview of his life, and it's probably 120 pages. You could read it in probably two to three hours. And then, and then William Tyndale uh, selected writing. So he wrote, oh, the bulk of his life, as we're going to find, is over translation of the the New Testament and part of the Old Testament. But he wrote other writings, um, God and Mammon and A Pathway to Scripture, uh, The Obedience of the Christian Man. So these were short little treatises he wrote that are still very readable today. And um, they would give you direct access to his actual writing. So, so I didn't read a lot, um, but, but there was enough, hopefully, to give you a good overview of his life. And, and William Tyndale, the one we'll be speaking about, in my opinion, is probably one of the most understudied Christian men in, in history. In a BBC poll a few years back, uh, they took uh, a survey of the 100 greatest Brits, men and women, the 100 greatest Brits uh, of that nation's history. And William Tyndale ended up as number 26 on that list. Now, Princess Di was number three, and John Lennon was number seven. Now, I, I love Princess Di, and I bought the two records and the greatest hits of the Beatles when they came out in the late 60s. Love the Beatles, but they are no William Tyndale. I mean, he has had probably one of the most major impacts on the English-speaking world. So what did he do that was so great? Um, well, he simply did this. He took the Greek New Testament, and he translated it into English. That's what he did. Greek New Testament, and he translated it into English. Now, <clears throat> number one, that did, spiritually speaking, it lit a fire in England that had been virtually, or not virtually, but 
uh, little affected by the Reformation taking place on the continent of Europe. Um, and in fact, he is known as the heart of the Reformation in England is William Tyndale. One author said he was the Reformation. So critical was, was his role. Um, but beside that, he's known as the architect of the English language. Systematizing English in, in a written document, systematized it, as we're going to see, um, we still speak William Tyndale English, as we're going to find. So it, big, faithful, faithful man. My, my prayer is that I, I wouldn't take notes. If you want the manuscript, I'll email it to you. just want you to sit back and just listen to how God has done a great work that we are still profiting by through this man's life. But, but to understand his life, you have to understand his times. So he was a late 15th century man. Okay, now this in Europe and Western culture at the time, society was just kind of rising out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. And, uh, and, and the teaching of the Reformation, if you're aware of that term, the Reformation was taking place in Europe. In other words, if you think of the Reformation, you think of Martin Luther, the reformer, and he nails the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And what Martin Luther was doing here was he was seeking to reform the Catholic Church, to, to bring light and to bring freedom into the church, to bring a return to the scriptures as they were originally written. And this reformation that Martin Luther would initiate wouldn't just be over spiritual issues, it would be over political and economic and, uh, and educational. I mean, all of Europe was changing in this time in a dramatic way. You know, they said the Middle Ages, one historian said the Middle Ages are a thousand years without a bath. That's how they explained it. And, and, and this was a, a major movement forward in every facet of life. But the Reformation was fueled by, let me give you another name, by a Dutch humanist named Erasmus. What he did was he put, uh, he published the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. It had never been done before. Remember, for a thousand years, if you were to learn anything of God, it was to come from the Vulgate, which was a Latin translation of the Greek New Testament. And it was a fairly poor translation. The problem was, though, that nobody understood it. And so only the priests could understand Latin and interpret to you and for you what God's word said. So they were literally in the dark. In fact, the, this Greek New Testament, um, his biographer, David Danielle, said this. He says, this is the first time that the Greek New Testament had been printed. It is no exaggeration to say that it lit a fire to Europe. Luther translated it into his famous German version of 1522. In a few years, there appeared translations from the Greek into most European vernaculars. They were the true basis of the Reformation. So here, what's happening on the continent of Europe is freedom and change. And modernization is coming. But the waves that were pounding on the shore of Europe were not hitting England. England was isolated from much of this Reformation. In fact, in 1517, seven adults, one woman and six men, were burned at the stake. That means as you're taken, you're put against a wooden pole. They put brush and dry wood around you, and they ignite it, fire, and... You're consumed. And why were they burned? They were burned because they had the audacity to teach their children 
the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed in English. In English. It was not what they were called to do. England was the last country in Europe uh, that still had translations of the scriptures were unlawful, punishable by death. So this is the time that William Tyndale was born and was raised. Now, we don't know a lot about how he was raised. He was born in 1494, and he was born in the southwest part of England in Gloucestershire. Um, if he looked to the east, he would see the Severn River and the Cotswolds, and if he looked to the west, he would see the Welsh Mountains. It was a prosperous town. It was, a, it was heavy in the clothing industry. That's going to play a role later. But we don't know about, I think he maybe had a brother, maybe two brothers, uh, unsure of any experiences that he had. Really don't know anything about him until he entered Oxford. And we have the record of him entering that university. Now, we know that his family must have been somewhat well-to-do because he was able to go to Maudlin College, which is a college in Oxford University. And there he would study arithmetic. He would study a logic and, and rhetoric and astronomy and ge ge um, uh, geometry and uh, Latin and Greek. Really, basic curriculum of University of Maryland graduates right there <laughs> who can't even pronounce geometry. Gracious, that's a bad way to get out of the gate. Um, but he graduated with a B.A. in 1512 and then went on, studied for his M.A., and graduated in July 20, or June 26, 1515. So here he is, a 21-year-old with an M.A. from Oxford University. Very, very gifted man, very brilliant man. And at that point, he was ordained into the priesthood. He was ordained into the Roman Catholic Church. Now, later on, he'll lament about the education. Here's what he says. He says, They've ordained that no man should look on the Scriptures until he has been steeped in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the Scriptures. So all those years in Oxford, he didn't learn any theology, and he's ordained into the priesthood. So then after that, he moves to Cambridge, where he studies for four years, and there he's exposed to theology. And he's exposed to the teachings of the Reformation, that Christ alone through faith alone saves. This breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church taught by Martin Luther, those teachings were infiltrating Cambridge University. And so he and a group of students would sit around and discuss these teachings of the Reformation. In fact, they were known as Little Germany. So in 1521, he graduated from Cambridge. Now he's steeped in learning but he has only had a few years of theology. So he steps out of the academic world and he becomes a tutor for a family of Sir John Walsh back in Gloucestershire uh, where he's studying the Greek New Testament, where he's studying the teachings of the Reformation. He's growing in faith and knowledge. And while he's tutoring their kids, and it's here where he's exposed, because this was a well-to-do family, well-placed in the community, he was exposed to the political and the economic and the religious leaders of the day. And he found the the um, intelligence or the training of the Roman Catholic clergy to be deplorable. Now, let me quote you from Bishop Hooper. He's later on in the mid-16th century, about 30 years past William Tyndale, but here's what he writes about the clergy. He says this. He says, There is negligence and ungodly behavior of the ministers of Gloucestershire, the inhospitable, non-resident. In other words, they were pastors of churches that they didn't go visit. Inefficient, drunkenness, 
Now, they did some survey or some analysis of the ministers because it gives these reports about who knew Scripture and who did not. And here's the findings, the unsatisfactory findings. In 1551, nine did not know how many commandments there were. 33 did not know where they appeared in the Bible. The Gospel of Matthew was the most frequent guess. That's wrong, by the way. <laughs> if you're thinking, oh, that's a good one. 33 did not know what, uh, excuse me, 168 could not repeat them. Most extraordinary of all were the results of the Lord's Prayer. 39 did not know where it appeared in the Bible. 34 did not know the author of the Lord's Prayer. 10 could not recite it. So, so let me just give you a picture of a dinner discussion that they had in this home of Sir John Walsh. And this is really, this sets, if you will, the flame to William Tyndale's life. He's in this discussion. Now, the man's described as a learned man, so he's educated, perhaps he's clergy. But he says this at the dinner. He says, we were better without God's law than the popes. In other words, so high and mighty is the pope and the teaching of the cardinals that we would rather have that than God's word. And so Master Tyndale answered him and said, I defy the pope and all his law and said that if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you know. And that was kind of a defining mark in his life. He wants the plow boy to be able to know the scriptures. So, confronted with the blindness of the clergy, confronted with the truth of the Reformation that was not breaking into the shores of England, and confront it with his desire for his own countrymen to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, he set about translating. That was his life's goal, and he says this, it is impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except that that the scripture be laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. Now, the problem with this is, as I said, it was, it was punishable by death to translate the scriptures. In fact, it was the Constitution of Oxford in 1408 was enacted that made it punishable by death anybody to translate the Scripture. So what he did was he went to London and he sought the bishop out to seek if he could have permission to translate the Bible into English. Now this bishop, Tunstall, was a classicist. He understood Greek. He was a peer of Erasmus. He understood the nature of education. And so Tyndale thought he had an open ear with this man. Sadly, he was wrong, and he was denied. Now, at this point, as the Reformation was breaking into England, uh, there was much persecution going on. And so Tyndale said this after his meeting with the bishop, I understood at last that there was no room in my Lord of London's palace to translate the New Testament, but also that there was no place to do it in all of England, as experience doth openly declare. In other words, he's seeing that anybody moving towards reformational truth, away from the closed, dark Roman Catholic theology, anybody moving away from that would be suffering greatly. Now, the question, of course, comes up, why the opposition? What's the big deal? I mean, to just translate the Bible into English, what's the harm? Well, there's a number of reasons they explained that it would be a problem. Number one, that it was considered that the English language was crude and it was harsh and it was not fit for the scriptures to be translated. That, that Latin, the language of the academy, was the only proper language in which to translate the Bible. <clears throat> but secondly, that the unlearned man or woman did not have the, the 
uh, enough intelligence to understand the scriptures. If you were to put the scriptures in their language, they would be apt to go awry. They would fall into disunity and lead to the ruination of the faith. So, the, so there's no trust in the ability, the clearness, if you will, of scripture. But then thirdly, the tradition held that divine grace was given just to the priest. And then the priest would then be given the ability to translate the scriptures. So those were the three given reasons. But I'd say there's something a little deeper. I'd say even a little bit darker. And that is simply this, that with Latin and with all the teachings of the church wrapped up within um, Roman Catholicism, it was an easier place in which to guide, i.e. control, both people and politics of the land. And to bring the Bible from Latin where it's not understood and put into English where we can all read it, it would undermine their authority and their place. It would also begin to cause other doctrines to collapse, such as the doctrine of penance, or the doctrine of purgatory, or the, or the hierarchical structure of priests and bishops and popes. You won't find that in there, they figured. And so they didn't want it translated. Now, when Thomas More was the Lord Chancellor under King Henry VIII, he was a man of great power. He was a, he, if you've seen A Man for All Seasons, I'll just say they gave him, they graded him on the curve in that movie. They really gave him a pass in terms of what he did. Uh, but but he, his biggest issue with Tyndale's translation of the Bible was really over five words that Tyndale would translate from. So from Latin, they would say the word penance, which means that I've got to suffer certain punishments. I've got to do certain deeds to find acceptance with God. But the word metanoia is really translated repentance. Well, repentance is me humbling myself turning from sin, appealing to God for mercy. It's totally different. Or the word church, ecclesia. The word church was translated in Latin, meaning the Roman Catholic Church is how they explained it. But ecclesia means just called out ones or local congregations. So, so it begins to undermine the whole structure of Rome. Or, or the, word for, um, the word for charity. that They would translate agape or love as charity, acts of charity that you have to do for God. But the word is really love, to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Or confession, the word they translated for confession, where I have to go to the priest and I have to confess my sins. The word was actually conf um, acknowledge or admit. In other words, I'm going to admit my sin before God. So, so certain of these words, what Tyndale's biographer said was, he cannot possibly be unaware that those words in particular undercut the entire sacramental structure of a thousand-year-old church through Europe, Asia, and North Africa. But it was the Greek New Testament, New Testament that was doing the undercutting. So, with that kind of opposition, he moves to Europe. Now, Tyndale, at this point, in 1524, <laughs> he's only about 30 years, 29, 30 years old, he moves to Hamburg, Germany, and then he moves to Wittenberg. Now, Wittenberg is where Martin Luther was leading the Reformation. And so he studies under him, and that's where he begins to translate the New Testament. Now, he translates the New Testament there. Then he finishes it in Cologne because he wants to get a printer to begin printing this New Testament. But while printing it in Cologne, one of the workers in the print shop had a little bit too much of the grape. So he had too much wine. He began to talk. The authorities caught wind that the printing of the New Testament translated into English, and they shut down the printing press at Matthew 22. Only 10 pages were printed. Tyndale, by God's grace, had been alerted, got all of his documents, and fled to Worms, another German city that was sympathetic 
to the Reformation. And there in 1526, the New Testament was printed in English on the mechanical printing press that had just been invented a few decades before. This was huge. He printed it, and then <clears throat> what he did was he put it in bales of cloth, secretly marked bales of cloth that were being transported from Germany to England, and he smuggled three to 6,000 copies of the New Testament into England. Well, when the Roman Catholic Church heard it, they declared a law punishable by, um, a crime punishable uh, by um, persecution, either the stake, either fire, other means to buy, to sell, or to handle a New Testament. Well, the demand only increased. Uh, in 1528, he would then move to the Old Testament. He translated the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Now remember, you couldn't study Hebrew in England. There was no place in any of the universities to teach Hebrew. He had to learn Hebrew in Germany through Jewish communities. Now this is amazing. He's a 30-something-year-old learning Hebrew, and then he translates these first five books. Then he did Jonah, and then he did Joshua through the historical books, through Second Chronicles. Uh, and then in 1534, he revises his uh, first translation, the New Testament, and uh, he revises it and then says that's his life's goal. Now, this is pretty amazing, because what it did was it didn't just put the Bible into the speech of the plowboy, but what it did, as I said, was systematize. He's the architect of the English language. We still have, his author notes, that there's probably over 500 proverbial expressions that we use both in and out of the scriptures. He says this. He says, 500 years after this great work, newspaper headlines still quote Tyndale, through unknowing, though unknowingly, and he has reached more people than even Shakespeare. Listen to some of the things that we just take for granted, but they were his translations from the Greek text into English. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Seeking you'll find a city set on a hill, the skin of your teeth. Fight the good fight. In him we live and move and have our being. Signs of the times, it came to pass. There were shepherds abiding in the fields. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let there be light. Terms like atonement, scapegoat, mercy seat, my brother's keeper. All those were Tyndale's understanding of the Greek, bringing it into English. In fact, Tyndale's, uh, the, the linguistic skill he had was marked by simplicity, which adds to its permanence. So he would try to go for monosyllabic words, just one syllable. Like, think about John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God. He tried to make it simple so the plowboy could understand it. Tried to keep it into short, everyday words, very few syllables, so it didn't demand higher education to understand it. So passionate was he that we would read and understand the scriptures. In fact, when you think about his translations, now he's, and we're going to find out, he's on the run, he's Europe, he's trying to translate. He must have moved a dozen times being chased by different agents of of the Pope, of the King of England, King Henry VIII. There's a whole story about he and Anne Boleyn. Another story um, that, that's fascinating. It really is. It, it plays out like a soap opera. Uh, but, but when King James in the 17th century 
authorized a version called the authorized version or the King James Version. When he authorized a version of the Bible to be translated, he assembled a team of over 40 of the greatest scholars of England to come together and to translate it, to put the Bible into an authorized version for the English people. And 90% of their New Testament was taken from Tyndale. They couldn't improve on it. A team of 40 scholars in peace and prosperity could not outwit the single man exiled under great pressure translating the scriptures. And 75% of his Old Testament, Tyndale, remember now he only went through the historical books, 75% was duplicated in the King James Version. That's pretty amazing when you think about what gifting, what ability God gave him for the purposes of getting his word out. Well, this great work that I'm speaking about didn't come without a great cost. One of the costs that Tyndale bore was, of course, that he lived in exile he, uh, for the rest of his life, for 12 years. He never made it back to England, never returned to his homeland. And he was constantly being chased and harassed by the Pope, by the Emperor, uh, by Cardinal Wolsey, by Thomas More, by King Henry VIII. And here's his offense. Here's his crime. His crime is to put the Bible into English. Now, the list of charges that were listed at his conviction were these. He believed in faith alone, and that justifies us before God. He believes in the forgiveness of sins, and that mercy offered in the gospel is enough for salvation. He denied any form of purgatory. Jesus bore all of our sin and all of our shame. He asserted that neither the Virgin Mary nor a saint should be invoked by us. That convicted him, ultimately of death. We're guilty. You have to believe that even to be a member of this church. It's incredible the times have changed. That's what convicted him. Suffering wasn't just faced by him, though, uh, by many. Let me just give you a few examples. The first English martyr of the Reformation was Thomas Hinton. He was preaching in Kent, and he was caught with Tyndale's New Testament. He was burned at the stake. February 23, 1529. Thomas Bilney burned at the stake. He recanted over fear, but then confessed his sin and suffered on August 19. Richard Bayfield ran ships transporting Bibles. He was burned, and Thomas More said this about him. He's a monk and apostate, was well and worthily burned in Smithfield. Three weeks later, a man by the name of Tewksbury was converted reading Tyndale's New Testament. The first time he could read the scriptures, he read about the the gospel of Jesus Christ, was convicted of his sins and believed. They put small ropes around his head, squeezed it so tight that his blood came out of his eyes. Then they burned him. John Bainham was another caught with all five books of Tyndale. He was arrested. He recanted. Can you imagine the fear? And yet God, by his grace, he confessed and affirmed his faith in Christ. Thomas More, the Lord Chancellor, had him whipped at a tree in his own own garden, sent to the Tower of London, put on the rack where they stretch you, left him lame, tortured him, then burned him at Smithfield. Add to these countless people. Let me show one, uh, the close friend of William Tyndale. His name is John Frith, a brilliant scholar who was burned on July 4. 1531 at the age of 20. But listen how Tyndale wrote to his friend, encouraging faith. This is a bigger, bigger goal that they had than just preserve your life. Listen to what he wrote. He says, Dear beloved brother John, 
He said, your cause is Christ's gospel. Hereby have we perceived love that he had laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For we suffer with him that we may also be glorified with him. Dearly beloved, be of good courage and comfort your soul with the hope of this high reward and bear the image of Christ in your mortal body that it may at his coming be made like his immortal. Keep your conscience pure and undefiled and say against that nothing. If you give yourself, cast yourself, yield yourself, commit yourself wholly and only unto your loving Father, then shall his power be in you and make you strong, and that so strong that you shall feel no pain, which should be to another a present death. What he means by that is when they saw the martyrs dying without pain in faith, that would kill them. He says, The Spirit shall speak in you and teach you what to answer according to his promise. He shall set out his truth by you wonderfully and work for you above all that your heart can imagine. Let not your body faint. He that endureth to the end shall be saved. The Lord of peace, of hope, of faith be with you. Amen. William Tyndale. And then in an addendum on another letter, he writes this to a man waiting in prison to be executed. He writes this. Your wife is well content with the will of God and would not for her sake have the glory of God hindered. Wow. I mean, that's, can you believe that? Carol's saying, yep. Don't upset anything. I don't want God's glory hindered. I mean, that is, th- these are people that are steeped, that are, their affections are more for God than they are for the preservation of their own life. Now, this is what happened to many people. This would obviously befall uh, William Tyndale as well. He'd meet the same end. It was a sad ending, actually. He was captured by a friend who betrayed him. So there was a man, Henry Phillips, an Englishman, and he was in great debt because he gambled away his a, a large sum of money that his father had given him to make a business transaction. He was in dire straits. He had to flee to Europe to avoid prosecution and even the prosecution of the king. And so they, they baited the hook by saying, we'll relieve your debt if you find and warm to William Tyndale so that you can lead him into an ambush. And he did. That's what happened. He befriended him under a phony friendship. William Tyndale, even though he was warned by his friends, was kind to this man. They went to dinner. They got to a narrow part of Antwerp. And Henry Phillips stepped back, pointed to the man. The guards captured Tyndale, who had been living in secrecy for 12 years, always being able to hide. That's why we don't have a lot about his life, because he was always in secret. We didn't know anything. They took him. They took him outside of Brussels, about eight miles outside of Brussels, and they put him in this prison, 500 days of interrogation, living in a cold, dark dungeon, northern Europe. Listen to what he writes, the head of this castle. He says, I beg your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have the letter, a copy of the letter. You can get it. It's written in Latin. But he says, I beg your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus Christ, that if I am to remain here through the winter you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has. In other words, you took my stuff. And he says, from the stuff that you took from me? He goes, may you send me a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in my head. 
And I'm affected with a perpetual cough, this excessive buildup of mucus in his ears, nose, throat, and chest. A warmer coat for the one I have is thin and a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My coat is worn out. My shirt is also worn out. A woolen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it. And I ask to be allowed a lamp in the evening, as it is indeed wearisome, sitting alone in the dark. In other words, for half the day, he would be in pitch black. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and dictionary that I may pass the time in study. He still wants to translate. In return, may you obtain what you desire, so only that it be for your salvation of your soul, praying for this man. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I'll be patient, abiding in the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus, whose spirit may ever direct your heart. So we don't know if they ever gave in or if they ever met these requests, but through the interrogations and through the torture, through the suffering, through the darkness, he continued to walk by faith. In fact, the jail keeper was converted, his daughter, and many of his family over his witness. In August 1536, he was convicted. And first he was degraded from the priesthood, because remember he had been ordained by the, into the priesthood after graduating from Oxford. And what they do is they take a, a sharp knife or uh, a shard of glass, and they scrape your hands because they're removing the anointing oil that was put upon you as you entered the priesthood. And then they take the uh, body and the, they take the bread and the wine from the mass, and they put it in your hands, but they take it right back out to show that you are broken fellowship. They dress you in priest garments. They immediately take those off you to show that you've been defrocked. You're no longer a priest. They put you in layman's clothes. They hand you over to the authorities. And that's what they did with him. Two months later, Here's how it went down, as was recorded, at least things similar to this. He says, before the sun had risen, he's led out of the castle prison, taken to the place of execution. View, they, they get onlookers to watch as a means of, of preventative means for others sinning uh, against the state and against the church. Uh, viewed by onlookers, the place of execution was surrounded by stakes, so they built like a, a little fence around this pillar. Uh, they would load it with wood in the middle, in brush and straw, a strong chain hung from the top with a noose at the end, and um, a final appeal was made for him to recant. He did not. A silence fell over the crowd. He then prayed a prayer silently, and then he shouted this. He said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Open the king of England's eyes. That's the only thing he said. That was his last prayer. His feet were bound. The iron chains fastened around his neck. Um, and, then the, uh, and then they sprinkled gunpowder on all the brush. The executioner came up, snapped down on the chain, which tightened the noose, and strangled him. Now, the executioner um, did not do a complete job because it only made him unconscious. When they lit the flames, of course, the heat brought him out of that unconscious state, but he was silent through the whole thing. Uh, the flames ignited gunpowder, gunpowder exploded, blew up his body, which fell into the flames. So at 42, he was never married, and he would never be buried. So that is his life in bringing about to us an English translation of the scriptures. So what do we do with this? I, I don't want to just wow you with a story, but I want to make some application. So, so let me just give you a few considerations of his life, and I want you to consider your life in, I don't want you to be a William Tyndale. 
But, but the characteristics that marked his life is how I want you to consider as you look at your own life. First, you'll see, number one, he's singularly committed to the translation of the scriptures. I mean, that was his dedicated goal of life. Now, in 1530 of November, Thomas Cromwell, a recent advisor to the king, had tried another trick to get, to get Tyndale to come back. He sent Stephen Vaughan, an English merchant, who was sympathetic to the Reformation, and he sent him over and promised Tyndale a salary and safe passage if he would just come back. And here's what Tyndale said to him. He said, I assure you, if, I, if it would stand with the king's most gracious pleasure to only grant a bare text of scripture to be put forth among his people, as it is put forth among the subjects of other nations, I shall make a faithful promise never to write more, nor abide two days in these parts, but immediately repair unto his realm and humbly submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer what pain or torture, yea, what death his grace will, so that this translation is obtained. Can you imagine? He's going to submit himself. If you just promise that there'll be a translation given for the people. Well, of course, he did not trust in the promise of the king. So here's what Vaughn writes back to Cromwell when the plan didn't work. He said, you'll always find him singing the one note. In other words, that's what he's about. He's committed to it. Now, just for a minute, just consider your perception of the English New Testament. Do you value it? Are you thankful for it? Do you read it? I mean, I mean, it is difficult to read sometimes. It's definitely easier to read the paper. There's no doubt. It's written for fourth grade level, but, but there's no doubt that it's, it's easier. But think about it. I mean, think of how he valued, singularly committed, for his people to know the scriptures. I'm a, I don't want false guilt to come upon your soul. I want a right guilt that would lead you to say, I never knew. I never knew the, the, the depth of suffering that one went through the grace of God to bring us the scriptures. And then you would turn to them. You would begin to, maybe we would be more, well, as they said of the early American congregationalists, we'd be people of the book. That's what we'd be. We'd be people who know our Bibles, people who read our Bibles, study our Bibles, memorize our Bibles. Okay, the second thing I would bring up to you is that he endured suffering, knowing it would bear fruit. Listen to his prayer when he said, may the king of England's eyes be opened. Do you realize within two years, the king of England, Henry VIII, may be a little bit unstable in terms of his decision making, but within two years, he authorized an English Bible to be placed in every pulpit in England. Within two years. They called it the Tyndale Bible. It wasn't actually. It was mostly Tyndale's work. It was called the... um, it was called the Great Bible. It was called the Matthew Bible. Matthew Coverdale was another theologian that kind of edited Tyndale's work, put it together in one. And within 100 years of this, a million copies of the Bible were sold. His prayer was answered. In fact, Henry VIII said this. He says that he ordered printers and sellers of books to provide for the free and liberal use of the Bible in our own maternal English tongue. He understood that suffering had a fruit-bearing capacity. He was willing to suffer for the purposes of getting the Bible translated into English. And now, now, you know, many of our sufferings can be brought upon by our own sin. I understand that. But suffering for the cause of Christ, it will always bloom into something beautiful. He understood his suffering would result in something great. But then thirdly, he worked with incredible diligence and hard work to advance this copy. 
of the New Testament. And consider the price and the dedication in bringing the scriptures. Now, no doubt, Tyndale was unique in his linguistic ability. They said he knew eight languages, seven besides English. He knew, he knew French and German, Greek, Latin, Spanish, Italian. And, and one contemporary said that you would think they all were his native tongue. So he was a great linguist, but he still worked hard. I mean, he still took the time to translate. He had to learn Hebrew in his 30s. You see the difficulties and the hardships that he endured. Even though gifted, he still had to work hard. In fact, he said this, he said, my pains, my poverty, my exile out of my natural country, my bitter absence from my friends, my hunger, my thirst, my cold, the great danger where I'm everywhere encompassed, and finally my innumerable other hard and sharp fightings which I endure. And in the midst of this, he still practiced serving the poor every Sabbath. He would read and study the scriptures at night with his friends, and he would translate during the week. So he was very gifted, but he was a hard worker. And I would just say for us, too, we've got to do hard things. There was a book that came out recently, Do Hard Things. And I think we tend to shy away. We, we tend to see something. We may give it one or two tries, and it just seems too hard. No, I can't do it. Well, I think we ought to press through those things. Perhaps for you, it's not reading through the Bible. You've tried to read through the Bible, and you, you just haven't been able to. I would ask you to reconsider that. Do hard things. Sit down. It takes you maybe 25 minutes a day. It'll take you every day. But read through, do hard things. Maybe it's a ministry that you've been hesitant to engage in because you really haven't felt that gifted. Well, try it. Do something hard. Let the grace of God be evident as he enables you to do that which you couldn't do. You know, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, I worked harder than any of them. And yet it was the grace of God that has worked within me. So we want to do hard work, but we don't trust in the hard work we do. We do the hard work, but we don't trust in that. Christianity is hard. It is hard. You know, one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, many of you know this, it's, he says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you really feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. It's a hard thing to do. I would encourage you to do the hard thing. Just a few more. He rested in the providence of God, both in times of light and times of darkness. So remember how he got the Bibles to England. He got the Bibles to England through these clothing distributors. Well, what had he been raised in? All his upbringing was in a family of people that worked with clothing. He understood the trade routes. He understood how clothing was sent. And he utilized that later on to smuggle the Bibles back into England. Can you imagine? He always picked ports. Excuse me. He always picked cities that were next to ports because he knew that putting it immediately on a boat, books are heavy, they're difficult to move, they're expensive to move, they're hard to move in mass across land through France to get to England. And so he'd put them on boat. Well, that knowledge served him very well. And so I can imagine he enjoyed the providence of God, but he also enjoyed the providence of God when it was dark. So the translations, when he was working through the Old Testament, uh, he was being chased in Antwerp. He got on a boat. or in, um, He was trying to get to Germany, fleeing someone chasing him. He got on a boat, and out, um, off the coast of Holland, storm came, wrecked the boat, lost everything. All of his translations, his Hebrew Bibles, dictionaries, grammars, lost them all, had to start all over again. I cringe when I can't find a file or when it's not recovered when the power goes off. He lost everything by hand, and he still saw God's smiling face behind that frowning providence. He saw, so many times I think we're quick to assess glory to God when things go well, but can we trust God when things don't go well? Is God still for us? He found him to be so. I mean, Job 
asks his wife, should I take the good and not the bad? God's the giver of both and the sustainer of us in both. And then two more, he was convinced that man was held in darkness without the gospel. This is really important now. He says this in his, in his writings, in the pathway to understanding scripture. He says, our will is locked and knit fast under the will of the devil. Excuse me. Our will is locked and knit faster under the will of the devil than could a hundred thousand chains bind a man to a post. In other words, he's saying that man has absolutely no ability to find God in his own merit. And so Tyndale, seeing the darkness that the Roman clergy left the people in by keeping it in Latin and not preaching the gospel, see, he viewed the human nature as absolutely dark, helpless, and unrescuable apart from Jesus Christ. So he was fueled to get the gospels in English so that we could read the gospel to see the power of the gospel is sufficient to save men and women from darkness. Now, this is an offensive message today. It was an offensive message back then. People don't want to hear that they have an inability to be saved, that they need outside help in Jesus coming to save them. And and we struggle with this today. We soft-pedal the gospel. We kind of make it nicer. If you have Jesus, life will be better for you. And so we kind of make it more palatable. And we're seeing this across the board. We do live in an age of verbal fear, verbal fear. In fact, in a magazine in the Atlantic, an article written by uh, Jonathan Haidt entitled The Coddling of the American Mind. Here's what he says. He says, something strange is happening in America's colleges and universities. We live in an age of microaggression where we're intimidated to ask anyone where they're from because it implies that they're not real American. He said, a mo- I know, it's, it's getting funny. He, he, he said, a movement is arising undirected and driven largely by students to scrub campuses clean of words, ideas, and subjects that might cause discomfort or give offense. And his point is, in the article, that it's dangerous to education, and it surely is. But I would say it's dangerous to the spiritual well-being that if we can't say hard things like, listen, you need the gospel, that God is at enmity with you because of sin, and, and it will ruin the presentation. Do you understand that man can only be liberated through the power of the gospel? If you think there's any other way, then, then you could never live this sort of life. But if we really understand that it takes the very power of God through the gospel as declared to us in the scriptures, if that's the only way we can be saved, then we go to the extent that William Tyndale does. And and then the last one is that he was undaunted before a threatening society. I mean, he has the world opposing him. Popes, emperors, kings, uh, the whole Roman hierarchy is opposing him. And he stands fast. Here's how he encourages people to face it. He says, let not make thee despair, neither yet discourage thee, O reader, that it's forbidden under the pain of life and goods, or that it's the breaking of the king's peace, or treason unto his highness, to read thy word of thy soul's health. In other words, even though you're facing all that, he says, if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us? be thy bishops, cardinals, or popes. This is a good word for us today. You know, many, some within the Christian community, I think are living under an unhealthy and unfaithful fear of the direction of our society. 
Um, they are looking immediately to governmental change. They're looking to laws to protect them. And, and, and we're trying to quickly uh, amass ourselves in terms of protection. Now, I understand the value of many of those things may provide for the Christian community in an age where Christianity is kind of being marginalized. We're not being persecuted yet. We're being marginalized, and we're not used to that. And I get that that feels uncomfortable. But let me just remind you that we as a church have to get comfortable with whatever direction society is going. Is God enough? Is he enough? I think he is enough. Christ at the right hand of God, far above rule, authority, power, and dominion for the church, us. He's enough for us. So I think Tyndale has much to teach us, not just from his life and the value of the scriptures, but regarding suffering and regarding hard work, regarding trusting in the providence of God even when things are dark, and and understanding the nature of mandating the gospel, and then ultimately that we can be undaunted because God is enough for us. So let's take a minute and just silently perhaps confess our sins if this has led you to a point of conviction or perhaps asking God for grace that you might draw to the scriptures. Many of us struggle. Let's ask God, give us a desire for your word. Even that's a move of God's spirit. And then an elder is going to close us in prayer. Thank you.